You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good morning. Good morning. Hope everyone's doing well. It's a joy to be with you this morning. It truly is. Uh, it's always good to come back. I'm always grateful for any opportunity to, to bring God's Word. And uh, it's good to see all of you again. Let's, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Our Father, how grateful we are that we have access to your throne of grace, how grateful we are that you have preserved your word for us and that the constant active work of your Holy Spirit as he illumines the meaning of your word to us and enables us to appropriate it. Father, I pray that as we go to your word now that you would quiet our hearts, that you you would clear our minds, and that your Holy Spirit would do His work of illumination, would do His work of uh, appropriating the truth of Your Word to our minds and to our hearts so that we would live lives that glorify You in our obedience. So, Fathers, we come to this passage, passage of James. May its truths find fertile soil in our hearts. May they seek down deep. All for Your glory, for our King. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of James. And um, as I have opportunities to preach, which is, you know, three or so times a year, we've been working our way through the book of James. And I think I quipped last time that uh, at this rate I will see my glorification before <laughs> we will get to the end of James. And that's probably quite likely true. But uh, James, right after the book of Hebrews, before you get to 1 Peter, the letter of James here, the book of James, written, of course, by James, Jesus' half-brother. We say half-brother, of course, because Jesus was virgin-born, virgin-conceived, and uh, then after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph had other offspring, other uh, sons and daughters. They had the old-fashioned way. So we refer to James as Jesus' half-brother. And we've been working our way through this passage, and really, once we get past verse 1, beginning in verse 2, all the way up to our point at which we will be today, and we'll be looking at verses 17 through 18, but this whole section is dealing with trials, trials and temptations, and our responses to these trials, our responses to these temptations. So let us look. I'll begin reading in verse 12, and we'll go through verse 18. But our focus this morning will be verses 17 and 18. But for a little bit of context, we'll begin in verse 12. James writes, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. And just as a parathetical note in the Greek, that literally says, he will receive the crown which is Life, which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among His creatures. May God bless the reading of His word. So verses 17 and 18 kind of mark the capstone, if you will, of this section dealing with trials and temptations. And if it had been up to me, which no one asked me, but had they, 
uh, I would have ended chapter 1 with verse 18 and started chapter 2 and verse 19. So verse 19 would be chapter 2, verse 1, because this really is the capstone of this section dealing with trial. So let's look at this. James says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. The emphasis of this section is the goodness of God. James begins by talking about God's goodness in a general way in verse 17. And then in verse 18, he moves into the goodness of God in a very specific way, dealing with God's goodness towards individual believers in their regeneration. So let's break this down a little bit and look at just a, a little bit of the richness of God's Word. Verse 17, every good thing given. Now, the way this literally reads in the Greek, it literally says every good giving and every perfect gift. Every good giving and every perfect gift. So the first phrase of this, every good giving, not really so much every good, every good thing given, but every good giving. So the emphasis here is on the act of giving. The act of giving in and of itself is good. Not only are the gifts good, but the act of giving is good. And the act of giving reflects the character and the nature of the one who does the giving. James here is saying that God's giving is good. And the only way God's giving can be good is if God himself is good, and he, of course, is God's character is, is that of absolute moral perfection. Now, all of us have heard ever since we were knee-high to a grasshopper in Sunday school that God is good. And we say that, that God is good. And you hear people uh, repeat, repeat this cliche a lot. Well, God is good all the time. And we just kind of say that. But don't let that escape you. God's moral character is that of 100% purity and goodness. Only God is perfectly good by his character and his nature. Remember the rich man in Luke chapter and excuse me in Mark chapter 10 who runs up to Jesus and he says, "Good teacher, what must I do to be saved?" And Jesus says, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God." And Jesus was not correcting him. Jesus was not saying, now wait, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. He wasn't correcting him. Jesus was leading him. Jesus was saying, yes, you call me good, but do you understand why? Do you understand why you call me good? Because there is only one who is good, and that is God. And I am good because I am God. He was not correcting him. He was leading him. You call me good and you do so rightly, but do you understand why you call me good? I am good because I am God. Every good giving comes from the one giver who is good. Now, dear ones, let me say that the goodness of God is one of God's most misunderstood attributes, one of his most misunderstood characteristics. So many people today would say, well, yes, God is good. And most people, in fact, would affirm that, that God is good. But they don't understand what they're saying when they make that affirmation that God is good. And most people think of God's goodness as a coddling goodness, as a warm, fuzzy, feel-good kind of goodness. And God is good. And when I die, I'm going to go to heaven because God is good, and yes, I've done a few things that are wrong, but you know, I've done more things right than I've done wrong, and I'm a good person, and because God is good, He's going to let me, who is also good, into His heaven. And dear friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, Why do you call me good? There is no one who is good but God. Only God is good. None of us, dear ones, are good people. None of us are good. All of us are vile, wretched sinners who have broken God's laws thousands upon thousands of times throughout the courses of our lives. There is only one who is good, and that is God. And God's goodness is not a coddling goodness. Many people are counting on the goodness of God 
to get them into heaven. But dear ones, it is the goodness of God that will condemn them. It is the goodness of God that will condemn people because they are not good. Now on this earth, if we were to see a judge, an earthly judge in an earthly court of law, if we were to see a judge look at a criminal who has just been convicted, let's say, of rape and murder, and that judge knew this person was guilty, and he said, yeah, you're guilty, all the evidence is there, you've been found guilty, but you know what? I'm a good judge, and because I'm good, I think I'm going to let you go. You're free. Have a nice day, and the criminal walks out the door. Would that be a good judge? Of course not. That would be a horrible judge, right? God is the ultimate good judge. And just like a judge on earth must punish crime, if he's a good judge, he must punish crime. God is the ultimate good judge who must punish sin. And if he did not punish sin, then he would not be good. And so the thing that many people are counting on to get them off the hook will be the very thing that condemns them. God's goodness is not a coddling goodness. It is a holy goodness. It is a purifying goodness. And for the believer, even God's discipline is good. God's goodness disciplines those whom he loves. Every good giving comes from the one who is good. And every perfect gift is given by the one who is good. Every physical gift. And Speaking of physical gifts, we mean those gifts that are enjoyed by everyone, believers and unbelievers alike. Whether you are a Christian or, a, or an unbeliever, you are the beneficiaries of God's physical gifts. All of us, saved or unsaved, we enjoy the various aspects of life. We can enjoy uh, a good sunset or a walk through the woods. Uh, all of these things are good. Friendship is good. Companionship is good. Fried catfish is good. So all of these things, lost or, or uh, saved, can enjoy. Physical gifts, but also spiritual gifts are good. Spiritual gifts are good. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing, beginning with the new birth, regeneration, all the way through the course of our lives, as He gives us every spiritual blessing, the blessing of sanctification, the blessing of fellowship with fellow believers, the, the blessing of growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Sometimes I hear charismatics say, I've had a couple of them asking me, ask me, well, have you had the second blessing? Well, Ephesians 1, verse 3 tells me I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So yeah, I've got the second blessing and the third blessing and the twelfth blessing and the 579th blessing. Every spiritual blessing was given to me, imparted to me by the Holy Spirit when He baptized me into the body of Christ through the new birth. Every spiritual blessing, every good giving, and every perfect gift comes down comes forth, comes down. This word in the Greek, this verb in the Greek, comes down, is in the present indicative voice. Now I know that that just warms your heart and blesses your soul, but what that means is, is that God, as the ultimate good gift giver, is showering His good gifts upon us every nanosecond of every day. They are constantly being showered down upon us at all times. And there is never a time in which God is not showering us as His children with every good and perfect gift. They are constantly coming down from heaven. They originate in heaven. They are initiated in heaven. They descend from heaven. And they do so constantly in an unbroken stream. Unbroken stream. Every once in a while, you'll hear somebody say something like this. They'll say, well, God really intervened in this situation. Maybe you've said that before. God really intervened in this situation. He intervened here. And I've said that myself, but upon more reflection, 
Uh, I don't like that. I don't like to say that God intervenes because God really doesn't intervene. To intervene almost implies that God is up in heaven just kind of twiddling his anthropomorphic thumbs without a whole lot to do. And every once in a while, he sees something that's getting a little bit out of hand, so he reaches down and he gets things back in order. He intervenes in this situation. No, God does not intervene. He upholds all things by the constant exertion of the word of his power. There is never a time, dear ones, when God is not working. Every atom in all of the universe is being held in its appointed place by the constant exertion, the constant working of God. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He is always working, constantly coming down from the Father of lights, James says, the Father of lights. Do you know that is the only place right here in James 1, verse 17, in which this name for God is used. Father of lights. It's the only place that you'll see it in all of the Bible. Now, Father, we see a lot in the Scriptures, right? We see it all over the place. And oftentimes when we read Father in the Scriptures, it denotes the act of creation. It denotes the act of creation. Job, in Job chapter 38, he says, Does rain have a father? Uh, who fathers the drops of dew? So this act of creation, and that is what is in view here. James is denoting God's act of creation and his constant act of sustaining that creation. The father of lights. What lights are these? If you have the NIV, it says father of the heavenly lights. Now that word heavenly is not in the Greek, it's just supplied. It's not really in the Greek. The NIV is a bit paraphrastic, but that is what is intended here. That is the meaning. It is referring to the celestial bodies, the planets, the moons, all of the stars, the father of lights. This is what James is referring to. Everything that has been created in all of the universe, all of the heavenly bodies. Psalm chapter 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies declare the works of His hands. When you look up at the skies and you see all of the, from what we can see from our vantage point, thousands of stars, but we know through telescopes now that there are truly trillions of stars out there. All of these declare the works of God's hands, the Father of lights. And it is this, dear ones, this good gift giver, the one who has spoken the universe into existence, it is he who is constantly showering down these good gifts. Psalm chapter 8, verse, verses 4 and 6, David says this. David says, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man, that thou carest for him. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, those things which you have ordained, you have created, what is man? What is man? And dear ones, when this was written some 2,700 or so years ago, David said this as he would stand outside and look up at the heavens on a clear night and see all these stars. But how much more Meaningful are these words to us now because now through telescopes and through telescopes mounted on satellites, the Hubble telescope, we can... They had no idea. They had no idea the expanse of the heavens. And even now we are just beginning to get a slight little glimpse of the, the enormity and the majesty of God's creation. I've always been a little bit fascinated by astronomy, not astrology, but astronomy. And, and I, I've done a little research. The circumference of this planet is 25,000 miles around the equator, 25,000 miles. You could, the circumference of our sun is 2.7 million miles. 2.7 million miles. The mass of this earth, I looked it up this morning, the mass of our planet on which we are sitting right now is 6.6 .6 sextillion tons. 6.6 .6 sextillion tons. Do you know how much that is? Neither do I. 
I don't have the slightest idea. I can't, I can't, my mind doesn't even work in that way. But do you know you could fit, as massive as our planet is, you could fit 1.3 million Earths inside our sun. And our sun is just an average size star. There is a star out there named Canis Majoris. You could fit, now are you sitting down? You could fit 1.3 million planets of our Earth into the sun. You could fit 9.3 billion with a B, suns, into this one star, Canis Majoris. What is man? What is man that God is mindful of us? But dear ones, the one who spoke this into existence is the one who is constantly showering us with every good gift. Selah. And then James says, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. No variation or shifting shadow. There is no shadow of turning with thee, as we sang just a few moments ago. As the earth, the moon, and the stars are all in their appointed orbits, we see the stars and where we see the the moon and the planets, rather, going around in their appointed orbits. And as the sun shines on them and the other celestial bodies move in their paths, we see this interplay, right? We see this interplay of movement and uh, interplay of light and shadows. We see eclipses. We see solar eclipses and lunar eclipses. What James is saying is, is, is that as majestic as the created order is, is that it is constantly changing. Constantly changing. We see this constantly, uh, constant interplay of light and shadows on the celestial bodies. And as a little side note, just while I'm thinking about it, if you ever happen to come across a book dealing with the four blood moons, remember this a few years ago? There's a particular preacher out there who made this, made millions of dollars selling this book about four blood moons, and the four blood moons were to be some eschatological sign, some uh, indicator of some big event in God's eschatological timetable. And I won't tell you the name of the preacher, but his initials are John Hagee. <laughs> he had this book out, Four Blood Moons, supposed to be some sign of God's, you know, the, the, the rapture, the second coming, or some important event on God's timetable. Do you know that of these four blood moons, three of the four were not even visible in Israel? the very you know, epicenter of God's timetable. If you had been in Israel, you would have missed three out of the four of them. It's nonsense. This is, this is nothing but a Christianized soothsayer. And anytime you come across this stuff, and you come across it pretty regularly from the charismatic way, don't buy into this stuff. Don't buy it. God is not trying to give you some clues as to eschatological timetable. The majesty of God's creation points to Him and His sovereignty and His his power and His goodness. But as we see variations and we see shifting shadows on the celestial bodies, there is no such variation. There is no such shifting shadow with God, with whom there is no variation. There is no shadow of turning with God. He is unchangeable. The created order changes. God does not. God does not change. You and I change all the time. Our emotions change, our feelings change, our interests change, our desires change, uh, our bodies change. From the time that I woke up this morning, from the time that my eyes opened this morning in bed, between that time and the time I got out of bed, I changed. I had cells to die, skin cells to slough off, and other cells to divide, and blood running through... I change, I change, we change all the time. We're in a constant state of change. As constantly as we are changing, God does not change at all. There is no variation. There is no shifting shadow with God. We refer to this as the immutability of God. God is immutable. That means not only does He not change, He cannot change. God cannot change. And I'm not misspeaking. There are some things that God cannot do. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. God cannot deny Himself. And God cannot change. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He cannot learn anything new. Nothing can be added to him. Nothing can be taken away from him. He does not change. Now let me briefly address a couple of areas of theology that uh, have, have been played to a lot of theological mischief dealing with the immutability of God, that the fact that God does not change. Two areas of confusion, just quickly, Christology. Our doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ. Some people say that Jesus changed when he became a man. No, he did not. No, he didn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. From eternity past, Jesus has always been God the Son, the eternal sonship of God from eternity past. And when he became a man in Bethlehem, he did not change. What happened in Bethlehem, in the incarnation, Jesus, eternally God's Son, took on a human nature. It did not mix with his divine nature. Jesus has always been one person, but since the incarnation, he has had two natures. His human nature does not intermingle with his divine nature. It is not a, a hybrid kind of nature. So Jesus' humanity, his robe of flesh that he took on, his human nature in Bethlehem, did not affect one iota, his deity. It has never been affected. Jesus' deity has never been affected. So there's a lot of theological mischief that happens in the area of Christology dealing with God's unchangeableness. The second area that a lot of mischief has happened is within the charismatic movement. And charismatics, one of their favorite arguments that they, they like to, to support the continuance of signs and wonders and miracles and people who supposedly have the gift of healing, they'll say, well, Jesus does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if there were people with the gift of healing, if there were apostles in the New Testament days because Jesus does not change, then there should be apostles and miracle workers today. False. It's absolutely false. You're, you're, you're trying to compare two different, totally different things. Jesus does not change. That does not mean that there are still miracles and, uh, or miracle workers and signs and wonders and people with the gift of healing. No, that is, that's a false comparison. Jesus has not changed, but God's revelation has progressed through the centuries. Now, if you were to use the charismatics argument and take it to its logical conclusion, you would have to say, well, God parted the Red Sea, and so God must be parting seas today. No, he's not. I haven't seen any parting seas. Well, God made a donkey talk in Numbers chapter 22. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen any talking donkeys, and I hope you haven't seen any talking donkeys. Has God changed? No, he has not changed, but his revelation has progressed, culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There were Old Testament sacrifices going on all the time. There were millions of, of animals sacrificed, slaughtered. We're not doing that today, are we? No. Has God changed? No, he has not changed. His revelation has progressed, culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's immutability, that he does not change. There's no shifting shadow. There's no shadow of turning with God. Dear friends, the immutability of God, the immutability of God should be a source of tremendous comfort to the believer and a source of terror for those who are lost. Comfort for the believer, terror for those who are lost. As believers... We can rest in the immutability of God. That God's love towards us does not change. His mercy towards us does not change. God has no mood swings. He's not going to, to deal with us any differently on any day than He does on any other day. His love for us, His provision for us, His mercy, all of these good, good gifts continually are being showered down from the one God who does not change. That is a source of great comfort for us. And it does not matter what happens in your life. It does not matter how bad the report from the doctor may be. It has not taken God by surprise. These things take us by surprise. The diagnosis of cancer, the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis or muscular dystrophy, 
These are losing our job, whatever. These things take us by surprise. They do not take God by surprise. They do not take Him by surprise. That's a source of comfort for us. We can rest in God's sovereignty. We can rest in that He does not change. It comforts us as believers. But it should be a source of terror for the one who is lost, for the one who is still in his or her sin. Because, dear ones, the same wrath of God that killed King Herod is the same wrath that burns against sin. The same fiery wrath that consumed Nadab and Abihu when they offered up strange worship to God is the same wrath that burns against sin. The same wrath of God that killed every living thing on the earth except for those eight people and that which they had in the ark, that same wrath that destroyed the earth burns today against sin. And that should be a source of terror for those who are unbelievers. It should be a source of terror for those who are unbelievers. Dear friends, that sin that you committed 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, for those who are live to an old age, 70, 80, maybe even 90 years ago, other people may have forgotten about it. God has not. The same wrath that burned against that sin that was committed so many years ago, unless you were in Christ, burns with the same intense fervor today that it did back then. Time does not diminish God's memory and it does not diminish His anger. There are no statutes of limitations when it comes to sin for those who are apart from Christ. Time does not diminish His memory. It does not satiate in any way His anger. His anger, His wrath against sin burns with the same hot intenseness that it always has, that it did the moment the sin was committed. Psalm chapter 7, verses 11 through 12. David says this, Psalm 7, 11 through 12, says, God is a righteous judge, and a God who has anger every day. Anger every day? God angry every day? Yes. His anger burns against sin every day. David says, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has bent his bow and made it ready. I have heard Rick Warren say to unbelievers, he has said, God is not angry with you. Oh, yes, he is. I've heard Rick Warren say, that if God, this, I, I kid you not, this is a quote. Rick Warren says, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. What a horrible thing to say. What a diminishing of the fury of God's wrath that burns with a pure, white, hot holiness. Dear friends, if you are not in Christ, if you are apart from Christ, God does not have you on His refrigerator. He has you in His crosshairs. The bow of his wrath is bent back, ready to be released. Do not think that time diminishes God's wrath or diminishes his memory. God's immutability comforts us as believers. It should terrify those who are lost. Why would anything, dear ones, that is evil have an attraction for us? When we understand who God is, His immutability, His holiness, His justness, His love and His mercy, why would anything evil have an attraction for us? Why, when God is constantly showering down good gifts towards us, why would anything evil attract us? It should repulse us. God is so good. He is so merciful. We should be laying up incorruptible treasures in heaven not seeking after the rusty junk of this world. God's immutability. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this, the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he said, God writes with a pen that never blots, speaks with a tongue that never slips, 
and acts with a hand that never fails. The immutability of God. Now let's move to verse 18. Verse 18, James says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Beautiful verse of scripture. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. The immutability of God contrasted with our mutability, contrasted with our constant state of change, uh, serves as a platform to launch into verse 18. The immutability of God deals with, James launches from that, and he goes into the question of who is responsible for the miracle of the new birth. Who is responsible for our regeneration, for our salvation? Now this gets into the, one of the great debates within quote-unquote Christianity. Now, this is far too simplified. And Brother Brian Wood is going to deal with this in this class coming up, and I encourage you to attend that. Far too simplified. Generally speaking, there's two different camps. One camp we'll call the Arminian camp, another camp the Calvinistic camp. Uh, Arminians named after Jacob Arminius, Calvinists named, of course, after John Calvin. Now, I don't really like that term because I'm not, you know, I'm not a disciple of John Calvin, but that's the name that is stuck, and so we're kind of left with it. But Arminians basically believe, here's where Arminians and Calvinists agree, at least in theory. They agree on the deity of Christ. They agree that Jesus came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, bodily raised from the dead, and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. In theory, Armenians and Calvinists agree on these things. I would say that the Armenian perspective is not at all consistent, but Armenians believe that from that point forward, then one's conversion is up to oneself. You have to make a decision. Am I going to choose Jesus, or am I going to choose the world? You have to make a decision for Christ, and it is up to you. And God does not put his anthropomorphic, if you will, thumbs on the scale one way or the other. He leaves it up to us. Are we going to receive Christ, or are we going to reject Christ? That's the Arminian camp. The Calvinist camp believes that our salvation as God's children, as his sheep, our salvation has been secured from eternity past. And we have always been sheep, now, we have been lost sheep, but at some point in our lives, the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes effective. We may have heard it a thousand times before, but at some point the gospel becomes effective and, and Jesus calls his sheep to himself. John 27, 10, 27, my sheep know my voice. He calls his sheep to himself. And we do not make the decision to follow Christ. Christ makes us alive, he regenerates us so that we can follow Christ. That our, that our salvation has been secured from eternity past. This, verse 18, gets into this question, who is responsible for our salvation? We as Calvinists, we would say that God and only God is responsible. Arminians would say they had a part to play in it because it was their wisdom, their cleverness, they are more wise, they are smarter, they are more clever than everybody else who rejects Christ. They're clever enough to choose Christ on their own. This is a huge, huge issue. It's been called the continental divide of Christian theology. The continental divide of Christian, the Christian theology. Just as water, that the rain that falls on the western slope of the continental divide makes its way into the Pacific Ocean, and the rain that falls on the eastern side of the continental divide eventually makes its way down into the Gulf of Mexico, where you come down on this issue will have profound implications on practically every other area of theology. It affects practically every area of theology and ecclesiology. Where do you come down? The continental divide of Christian theology. But look at what James says. Let's go to the text. What does he say? James says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth in the exercise of his free will. Now, in the Greek, this is really an emphatic statement. In other words, when James says in the exercise of his will, there's, 
there's an extra pronoun in there. There's an extra he in there. And it, it, it says basically this. He, referring to the Father of lights, he, in the exercise of his will. You see, it's emphatic. It would be like someone saying to me, Justin, he did that. You see the emphasis. Justin, he did that. Not just that Justin did that, but Justin, he did that. There's an emphasis there. And this is intentional. James is saying, he, the Father of lights, he, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. Dear friends, our new birth is God's doing. It is God's doing. Remember Acts chapter 9, Saul? Acts chapter 9, Saul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. And remember, he hated Christians, right? He hated Christians, and he was breathing threats against Christians, breathing threats against the church. He was overseeing their execution. He was having them bound and arrested and sent off to be, uh, many of them to be executed. He hated Christianity. And what was happening in Acts chapter 9, Saul was walking down the Damascus road, and Saul all of a sudden saw this great blinding white light, right? And it knocked Saul off of his feet. And then he kind of stood up and he dusted himself off and he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm the one whom you are persecuting. And Saul, right then and there, he prayed a sinner's prayer and he asked Jesus into his heart, didn't he? No. No. Jesus arrested him. Saul had been arrested, arresting Christians. Jesus arrested him. Jesus knocked him off of his horse or feet. He knocked him off, knocked him to the ground. Saul didn't give Jesus permission to do this. And then later, Jesus was speaking with Ananias, and Jesus said this of Saul. He said this of Saul in Acts chapter 9. He said that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine. Chosen Chosen from when? Chosen from before the foundation of the world. He's a chosen instrument of mine, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. How's that for an invitation? I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Saul didn't ask Jesus into his heart. Jesus arrested him. Jesus changed him. Acts chapter 16. Remember Lydia? In Acts chapter 16, she was a maker of uh, dyes, purple dyes. And uh, Paul, Saul, Lydia, they ran into each other and, and Paul shared the gospel with Lydia. Remember, that, remember this in Acts chapter 16? And what does it say? That, that when Lydia heard Paul, uh, she opened her heart to the gospel, right? It's not what it says, is it? Acts chapter 16, it says that God opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Lydia didn't open her heart. Lydia didn't make a decision. Her heart was hard. She had a heart of stone. Lydia was spiritually dead. Dear friends, we are not sick in trespasses and sins. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Lydia didn't want to open her heart. She couldn't open her heart. She didn't even want to. God opened her heart for her. She could not do it. So God did for Lydia what she could not do for herself. God opened her heart. The passage that was read this morning in our morning reading, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Jesus, speaking of believers, says that we are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How much clearer could it be? We as believers who have experienced the new birth, we are born not of blood, not of the will of, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But of God. And I am so weary of hearing Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, in which Jesus says, And behold, I stand at the door and knock. And we have this idea, this picture in my mind. In fact, I, I, I used to have a painting of this scene, unfortunately, hanging on my wall in my room as I grew up as a boy. This, this sheepish little Jesus standing outside of this door and 
knocking. Just hoping that someone will open the door for him. We have reduced Jesus to the one kid on the playground that nobody wants on their team. And just like that kid on the playground that nobody wants on their team, sitting there on the sidelines just wishing, oh, somebody, please pick me, pick me. How pathetic. Jesus is not saying, please pick me. Dear friends, Jesus is not sheepishly knocking on Jesus is not sheepishly knocking on the doors of our hearts. He doesn't knock on the doors. He blows the doors off their hinges. And I will say this, that one of the common objections to Calvinism is this. I hear this a lot. Well, I hear that Calvinism kills evangelism. And if, you, if you're a Calvinist, you, you're, it just kills evangelism. You don't do evangelism. You don't do missions. Let me tell you something, dear friends. The most evangelistic people I know, the people who are out there passing out tracts, who are out there open-air preaching on the streets, with very few exceptions, I'll say 99% of them, you know what? They're Calvinist. But I've also heard this, that Calvinism is arrogant. And it, Calvinism is mean, and, and the Calvinists are mean and they're arrogant because they, they just think they're one of the chosen, they're better than everybody else. No, no, no. A thousand times no. Dear friends, rightly understood, Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, God's sovereignty and salvation, is the most humbling doctrine that there is. I would submit to you that it is Ar the Arminian position that is arrogant. Because here is the Arminian position, basically. Here's what Arminians would say. Now, they won't say it in so many words, but when you look at what they teach and you take it to its logical conclusion, here is where it leaves you. The Arminian position is this. Yes, Jesus, I know you took the mockings. I know you allowed your face to be slapped. I know you allowed your beard to be plucked out. I know you took the stripes on your back. I know you took the nails through your hands and your feet. I know you took the full undiluted fury of the wrath of God. But I had a part in this too. You did all of those things. Yeah, Jesus, you did all those things. But you couldn't do anything for me until I gave you my permission. the one who bore the full, undiluted fury of God's wrath on the cross can't do anything unless we give him our permission? Dear ones, I would submit to you that that is what is arrogant. That is what is arrogant. And rightly understood, God's sovereignty and salvation strips from man everything that he believes he contributes to his own new birth. It is the most humbling doctrine there is because it strips from us everything that we think we contribute to our salvation. Dear friends, we contribute nothing to our salvation. It is all of God. Jesus bore the mockings. Jesus bore the stripes. Jesus bore the nails. Jesus bore the full undiluted fury of God's wrath on our sin. He bore it and He deserves all of the glory. Not us. Not us. The only thing that we contribute to our conversion is the sin that made it necessary in the first place. All of the glory should go to Him, not us. Not us. God must do it because we cannot do it ourselves. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And there is nothing that a dead man can do for himself. The prophet Jeremiah asked rhetorically and Chapter 13, Jeremiah, he says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? No. The Ethiopian cannot change his skin. The leopard cannot change his spots. James says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us forth. Do not miss the contrast here. He brought us forth. 
Now this word in the Greek, hapakeo. Hapakeo. He brought us forth. It is the same word. Look up a few verses. Look up in verse 13. Excuse me, verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Notice the brings forth in verse 15 and the brought us forth in verse 18. It's the exact same word. It's the exact same word that is used here. What does man's desire bring forth? Man's desire, apakueo, brings forth death. God's apakueo brings forth life. Notice the contrast. Man left to himself, his apakueo, his desire, leads to death. God's apakueo leads to life. And he does this by the word of truth, James says. What is the word of truth? It is the gospel. The gospel is the word of truth. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul reminds his readers of, quote, the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. This phrase, the word of truth, is found four times in the New Testament. That was one of them, three other times. And in every example, the word of truth refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the instrument through which God brings the dead to life. It is the instrument through which he calls his sheep to himself. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is the power of God unto salvation? The gospel is the power of God. Not in these signs and wonders, not in these fake signs and wonders that charismatics are into, not in these seeker-sensitive churches that, that other so-called evangelicals are into, we're going to make church fun and we're going to make church entertaining and we're going to water down the gospel a little bit because we don't want to be offensive. We're going to water down sin. We're going to water down the gospel so that people don't feel uncomfortable. The world will feel comfortable in our churches. We're going to water it down. These people can tell me all day long how much they believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but I can tell you that they don't believe it because if they did, they would not be watering down the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would not be diverting people's attention away from the gospel. They would be doing nothing but preaching the gospel for it and it alone is the power of God unto salvation. If you dilute the gospel, you dim the light by which men must be saved. We are born again by the word of truth. That, dear ones, is how dead men are brought to life. And then James says, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. First fruits, this is an agricultural reference, and it referred to the first and, and usually the best part of the harvest. The first part of the harvest. Not all the harvest, just the first part of it. But the first fruits was a good indication of what the rest of the harvest excuse me, would be like. And remember, James is the first book written in the New Testament. James, the book of James was written about A.D. 50. So we're just talking, you know, 15 or so years, maybe not even that, maybe 14, 15 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. James is writing to some very early Christians. The church had just gotten off the ground. The apostles were, were, were preaching the gospel, planting church. These are very early Christians. And James is writing to his readers and he said, you will be brought forth by the, by the word of truth as a kind of first fruits of God's creation. These were the first believers. The first fruits of God's creation. And I'm reminded when I think of this, I'm reminded of what Jesus prayed in his prayer right before he was crucified in John chapter 17. Remember the high priestly prayers we often refer to it before his crucifixion? In John chapter 17, Jesus says this. He's praying for his disciples, but he's, then he says something beautiful. He says, I ask not on behalf of these alone, but also for all of those who will believe in me through their word. 
He was praying for his disciples, but he says, I'm not praying just for these alone, but for everyone who will believe in me through their word, through their proclamation of the gospel. I'm praying for them too. We're included in that. And so, yes, these believers were kind of the first fruits, but ever since then, for almost 2,000 years, God has been bringing in His harvest. And we are part of that. We are His creation. As I conclude, dear ones, let me land this plane. As I conclude, to whom would you rather trust your eternal destiny? To whom would you rather trust your eternal destiny? To yourself? When the Bible says that apart from Christ we are dead in sin, Ephesians 2, we are evil from the womb, Psalm chapter 51. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans chapter 1. We are enemies of God, not neutral. We are enemies of God, Romans chapter 5. And we are not seeking after God, Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Would you rather trust your eternal destiny to someone in that state? Or would you rather trust your eternal destiny to the one who is all good, who is all loving, who is all holy, but who is also all merciful and is omniscient, knowing eternity past from eternity future, not only knowing it, but graciously and sovereignly ordaining it. I don't know about you, but I would far rather trust my eternity with Him. Not me. Not me. God is the ultimate good gift giver. Dear friends, as I said a few moments ago, that sin that you have committed, and all of us have committed thousands of them. But maybe there's someone here this morning and, and you're, you've, you're not, you've not yet come to Christ. You've not yet trusted Him and His work on the cross. And maybe you've got some sin that you committed long ago and you think everybody else has forgotten about it. Or maybe other people who knew about it have since died. And it's just left with you and your thoughts. Let me tell you, time does not diminish God's memory. Time does not diminish His anger. The bow of His wrath is pulled back. And if you die in your sin, you'll very rightly and very justly go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell. But there is good news. And the good news is this, is that your conscience can be cleansed, your slate can be wiped clean. And no matter how heinous that sin may be, no sin is greater than the mercy of God. There is nothing that He will not forgive. If you come to Christ and you lay down your works you lay down your good efforts. You lay them down and you count them as what the Bible says that they are, as filthy rags. Abandon them. Lay them down. And you throw yourself at the mercy of Christ. If you will believe in what He did for you on the cross, believe that He satisfied God's wrath on the cross, believe that He was bodily raised from the dead, if you will place your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, turn from your sin, He will save you. He will save you. It doesn't matter what's in your past. The call of the gospel goes out to everyone. If you repent of your sins and trust Him, He will save you. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Dear friends, He will blot out your sin. He will blot them out. He will put them as far as the east is from the west. And He will remember them no more. And you can be brought forth 
by the exertion of God's will, by the word of truth, by the gospel. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, as we, as we look at your creation, we're reminded of your power, of your majesty, of your sovereignty. As we contemplate the cross and what you did to your own son, we are reminded, reminded of the heinousness of sin. We are reminded of your wrath that burns against sin, but we are also reminded of your mercy in that while we were yet sinners, you did this for us. You demonstrated your own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, I pray that as your gospel has gone out, that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only he can do. Convict of the gospel. Bring us forth by the exertion of your will. Make us a first fruit of your creation. A new child. One of your own. For all of us as believers, we pray that your word will be implanted in our hearts and minds. And may we be in awe of you, the ultimate good gift giver. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.